with Melbourne's diverse poetry scene. Poets using their voices to entertain, to move, to take you on a journey. Connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance. Good morning. Welcome to Spoken Word on 3CR. My name is Tina Janukas. 3CR broadcasts from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge elders, past and present. Today on the show, I have poet and teacher of creative writing, Amelia Walker. Amelia has published four collections of poetry. Her latest and fifth collection is Alagopesis, or Making Poetry Out of Silence, published by Gazebo Books. It's a groundbreaking collection exploring the poet's experience of domestic violence, sexual identity and mental illness with empathy and resolve. These are important issues in our society and Amelia Walker's latest collection, Alagopesis, offers us valuable insights in what is a profoundly thought through and aesthetically innovative collection of poems, highlighting the transformative power of poetry to challenge stereotypes around the experience of domestic violence, sexual identity and mental illness through a fusion of the poetic and the autobiographical. The program will feature poems and a discussion around these issues as well as some strong language. So if all this is likely to trigger some listeners, please take care of your psychological and mental well-being by turning off your radio or listening to the podcast later on at your own pace and place of choosing. Welcome to the program, Amelia. Thank you for having me here. As I've spent the last few days reading this amazing new collection of yours, Alagopiasis, I wondered how you put this collection together. Can you tell us something about the structure of the collection? Absolutely. So the collection brings together work from across about 20 years. The themes are all things that are difficult to speak about, but I wanted to play with that formally through the use of fragmentation and erasure. So there's a number of sequences that run across the collection. It'll either be sort of flash fiction pieces that are serialised into very short bursts or pieces that repeat again and again, but each time there are different words taken out and put back in and it asks people to read what's not there as much as what is. The book is divided into 12 sections. Each section has 12 poems. It took me a little while to realise that the poems were being repeated, but in slightly different versions and different aspects of the questions you were exploring were coming out, which I think is an amazing thing to be doing. Thank you. When I put together the order, the idea was that all the sequences would repeat in orders that would be meaningful. So um, there's, you know, a piece about the tortoise and it's number one in section one, number two in section two, number three in section three, so it sort of slowly crawls through the book. But all the other sequences have their own patterns, which are a little bit more subtle. So I actually had, for about three months, I had a whiteboard with this sort of 12 columns, 12 rows, and the titles of the poems that I was continually shifting around. I had some very crazy days where um, I'd sort of spend the whole day shifting things around only to shift them back. I wondered how you actually managed to structure this book because it's very challenging to produce a collection which in a way is a disconnected narrative. It's not so much a collection of separate discrete poems as a collection of poems that are interrelated and speak to each other across the collection. In a way, as I was reading it, I was constructing a story through these poems. Was that your intention? 
Yeah, that was absolutely the intention. I guess there's several stories in there that braid together. Yeah, the idea is that a reader can trace particular sequences across the book. You know, I wanted it to be a book that people wouldn't just read once cover to cover, but, you know, you might read it once that way and then you might go, oh, I want to specifically follow this story and just flick across the pages and the sections to find the different bits. You know, go forwards, go backwards, see what changes. You mentioned uh, the tortoise. Would you like to read one of those poems? Sure. I mean, the tortoise is a story, but I'll just read, I guess, the opening section of it. It's called Naming the Tortoise, so this is part one. The child stirs in bed, bladder full, burning. It is dark, and she is scared. She is scared, not of the dark, but of what light might reveal. The covers are over her head, with just a small space where her nose pokes through. She wriggles her toes, presses one against the hot water bottle. Still too hot yet the sheets remain cold, starchy. They're warmer than the floor, though. She tries rolling on one side, no good, the other, worse. Shifting to her back, she draws and holds her breath, listens to the white walls groaning, worrying with the things that shift within, like the contents of an uneasy bowel. The clock says two. When you were writing these poems, how did you conceive them? Did you come up with a a poem like the tortoise and then think, well, I want to have another look at this poem? What was going through your mind? Well, that particular piece was one from about 20 years ago. And that actually, yeah, initially was more of a flash fiction, but I've broken it into the little episodes. I guess each sequence in the collection has different origins depending on which kind of moment, which mood, which themes... But yeah, the commonality that brings them all together is definitely the, the difficult issues or things at least that I found very difficult to articulate for a long time. You mentioned that you wrote these poems over a period of 20 years. So I don't imagine that you had conceived the collection. You were simply writing these poems and somehow in the end they came together into this collection of poetry that I also think of as a, as a book, perhaps a, a strange novel rather than just a collection because the, the poems can be read by themselves but by being interconnected in the way they are, allowing me to construct a narrative, it makes me think of the novelistic as well. That is one of the most wonderful things I could hear um, because, yeah, there was certainly an aim towards that and I was very inspired by the work of certain autofiction writers, um, particularly Sergei Dabrowski, who uses, yeah, a lot of braiding and um, cycles in his work. So, yeah, the formal thinking around the book was definitely, um, definitely inspired by that. Can you tell us more about that writer? Now, I have to preface this with I have terrible French. I can only read it Um, so I've muddled my way through um, his books but he is in France considered the father of autofiction there. It's funny because autofiction's taken off so much in English but his works haven't been translated I think because they're just so hard to translate but his books use a lot of I guess psychoanalytic themes and a lot of rumination and going back to the same idea again and again and again but in different ways quite intense interesting you use the word rumination because when I was reading the collection I did feel that there was a a narrator behind all of this ruminating and looking at different experiences some of them very confronting for 
of the narrator. Would you like to tell listeners what are these experiences that uh, form the core of the book? So the three issues sort of flowing through the book are domestic violence, queer heartbreak and mental illness. They're all things of which I have direct lived experience, although I must say my experience of domestic violence, which was in my early 20s, I was very fortunate in that I was in a situation where I didn't have at least the kind of logistical things holding me back that a lot of women do, so I didn't have children. I was, although it was difficult, I was financially in a position to get out and I did have friends who helped me do that. But still, I guess the psychological element of it uh, was huge so there's one poem in the book women like that I guess there were two points I wanted to make through that poem it was about coercive control turning into violence eventually coercive control being the things that aren't physical violence but they were things like isolating me from my friends sort of destroying my self-esteem making me feel disempowered and and giving me the idea that I was dependent on this person would you like to read edited extracts of that poem? Sure. Women like that. I just don't understand women like that. This lady in the supermarket is saying, gesturing to a tabloid tableau of some young starlet failing to hide black eye and tears. Why don't they just get up, get out and away? I stand by, full of words, silent. Two years with you taught me silence as an art. I can't unlearn, even now. Thirteen years since that day I threw my life onto a friend's trailer, hurrying, because we weren't sure when you'd be home. Thirteen years since, yes, I got up and got out. See, what the lady in the supermarket can't know is how much time women like us spend comforting our fragile monsters who don't so much cage us as lure us into their own cages from which they can't escape. Did I get away? I learned to box, travelled, returned to study, started dating again, fell into something I called love for seven years without feeling it, but... He had a job, didn't drink, but... There were other things he never gave me, things I needed. Eventually, again, I got up, got out. Now, after all these years, still silent while a stranger speaks and speaks of what she doesn't and can't understand. This is how I know, despite getting up and out, I'm yet to get away. It must have been a difficult poem to write and to reiterate that experience through the collection. It was difficult, but it was also incredibly, I guess, cathartic. You know, that self-knowledge that comes through poetry. It was kind of, I guess, um, as well as being about the coercive control, about the fact that just because you've left, that trauma stays with you and, you know, it infects your later relationships, your ability to trust so much in life. Writing that actually helped me to kind of see it, you know, on the paper like it was someone else's life and to judge myself less because, you know, although we should never judge someone, I did judge myself for getting into that situation and for not, I guess, getting out sooner. So, yeah, writing it was very cathartic. As I was reading through the collection, there were also poems about sexual identity and uh, mental illness. And, of course, you've already mentioned that these are issues that you are exploring I'm wondering how you 
conceived of these three issues in the one poetry collection? They've been three things that have been really huge through my life. I guess, yeah, they're the three things that it's always been hard to talk about. You know, I've even been told don't talk about that. I'm bisexual. I've had relationships with both women and men. With mental illness, I was diagnosed with bipolar when I was 18. And there was, I mean, there's still huge taboo now, but I actually think it's gotten a lot better over the last 22 years. You know, I was told, you know, never, never reveal this in a workplace. You won't get a job. People won't want to be friends with you and so forth because the stigma that surrounds it. What I actually found in my life was the more I hit it, the more of a problem it became. And when I could actually just come out to people and be honest, look, I'm, I'm like this. And if I'm behaving in this way, um, can you actually please tell me because I need to actually go sort myself out if I'm doing that. And that really open communication as well as having really fantastic sort of therapists I've been able to access who do things in a really different way from the mainstream psychiatric system. Those things have given me the ability to have, you know, health, a career, a very good relationship now at last. We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Welcome back. You're listening to Spoken Word on 3CR. I'm Tina Janukas, and today I'm talking with poet and teacher of creative writing, Amelia Walker, about her latest collection, Alorbeuses, published by Gazebo Books. When I was reading the poems, I was in awe, actually, of how you were handling these themes, because they're not easy themes to write about and there's always a danger of concentrating too much on the aesthetics of poetry or too much on the actual themes. Marrying that into a poetic collection is quite extraordinary and I think it would be good for listeners to uh, hear a couple of those poems. So I'll read one of the poems on mental illness. This is called Blue Again. It actually comes out of a conversation I had years ago with my therapist and he was talking about the idea of embracing depression and I just thought what on earth like who would want to do that and now it makes perfect sense to me and that's to me part of living with the cycles and just understanding it's all part of the same thing yeah accepting it rather than fighting it so this was the poem I guess about my experience coming to this place of embracing it blue today is blue but not lonely, nor cold. No black dogs haunt this corner, rather pigeons, soft, cooing, huddled, sharing warmth. I am one of them, feathers melting into feathers, melting into open stairwell skies. They say there are things that can take this away, but why should I want that? I'm already still soaring, Dipping, spinning, remembering all the other sides of all those clouds the cautious friends said, don't touch. Tomorrow, the wind may wake again and then, but for now, blue is no bad colour for becoming in the shadows of a bleached white world. You also spoke of the questions around sexual identity. Again, I found those poems quite amazing, the way you take the reader on a a journey through that 
exploration of sexual identity and I would love listeners to hear one of these poems. Oh, thank you. I'll read one called Small Talk. This is one of the poems written about 20 years ago. Um, and it's about one of the first times I felt a really strong attraction to another woman and didn't quite know how to deal with it. I can't believe she's doing this. In Brunswick Street, of all places, Kramer clings to her lips as she weaves them, winds them, teases and twines them, long lean, muscles stretching, fluid and obscene into shapes, such shapes, I gasp. Still she pushes them onto me, forges them into me, these shapes, her shapes, her lips, her words. She is an alchemist, mixing precious metals with her tongue. Her mouth contorts, casually ominous cloud pouring out more of them, more of them, words, long words, slow words, strange words, new words, words with syllables strung, sleek and shining, sudden words, foreign words, spice-spiked four-letter words, soft, sharp, bitter, sweet, latte-laced words. She strips words, shaves them, parades them pink and shining, drizzles them like hot wax into the curved flesh hollows of my ears. She makes words take to themselves with blunt objects, makes them ache and bleed new meaning. She splits words open, makes them gape like pomegranates. She reaches in, explores, discovers, leans across the table and feeds me words. I speak. Deformed fish flee my lips in a fury of salt-stung sounds. I wasn't raised to make such noise. She is the fisher, casting lines down my throat and hauling up diamonds, dirty, uncut diamonds, diamonds I've swallowed, words I've swallowed, words I don't want to say. She is hauling them out, dragging jagged fragments from my soft esophagus until I can't stop. I spew. All over the trendy silver table, I spew fish, I spew shit, I spew blood, I spew diamonds, I spew words, 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 and more words. Till the table is covered. Sugar pot, salt, pepper, phones, bags, keys, coffee cups, both of us covered. The waiter offers a napkin. I dab my chin. Meanwhile, two men at a nearby table sip lattes talking amongst themselves as if all this were normal and every day. And, as I keep telling myself, it really is nothing more than a conversation. Is poetry a way for you to make sense of the world? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, through both reading other poets' works and through putting together my own poems. When I started writing, and, and still today sometimes, you know, the poems would just fall all over the page and just kind of random scribbles you know get it out and that editing process for me of taking something that looks like a complete mess and bringing it into the stanzas the line breaks you know giving it an order and and reworking it while you do that that process for me is you know where you really kind of rethink things and understand them and yeah and gain a sense of what's going on the title of the collection Alagopiasis, which is the making of poems out of silence. Um, as you've been reading poems, I do have a very distinct sense that the poetry is in fact coming out of that silence that one falls into in the face of experience. Yeah, absolutely. That idea of being beyond words or speechless or just unable to articulate something because it's 
it's overwhelming. Is it a, a remarkable thing for you, all these words that somehow fall into a poem? Um, see, I'm not one of those it-falls-together poets. I am definitely one of those poets who has to work. I enjoy that work, that obsessing. Many of us have that thing where the inspiration comes, who knows where it comes from, or, or some big emotion hits you and you've got to get it out. That's always a complete mess for me and you know, wouldn't make sense to anyone else and, and doesn't even really make sense to me. Um, and, yeah, the process of then going through that is a hard process and off you know it, it won't work out and I throw things away or they're still sitting in my big filing cabinet waiting for me to find them and have the right moment for them some of the poems in this book were like that they sat in the filing cabinet for years and years and years before I was in the right place to pull out the drafts and rework them because I had that distance and that different insight and oh that's what I was trying to say back then but yeah certainly when when you do get it yeah, it's, it's a great feeling and you always have that sort of aha moment. It's amazing that you're able to go back to poems that you wrote maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago and reshape them in the now. H- how is that process for you? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think the thing is that a lot of the ones that, yeah, I couldn't quite get right at the time, it was because I was so close to the experience. So, you know, particularly the domestic violence ones, the sort of, they were the ones where the drafts sat and you know being now in a very safe place in multiple senses it was okay to go okay I'm gonna I'm gonna look at this I'm gonna understand um you know what it was and and also I'm gonna communicate this for other people because you know in a way a lot of those poems are the poems I probably needed to read at that time you know to understand oh yeah you know this isn't normal (laughs) would you like to read a poem So I'll read a poem called The Game of Barbies. And I'm aware that we've read a lot of the dark poems in this book. So I just want to, I guess, bring out that there also are some funny and lighter ones. Um, Although this, you know, at the end of the day is is about gender and all of that. The Game of Barbies. In 1987, my mother's take on feminism was buying me Dr. Barbie. I loved Barbie, they all said. The adults... I was a girly girl, they said, and I was, because I played and 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 played with those Barbies, and at birthdays, asked for more Barbies. Presumably, I asked for Barbies because I liked Barbies, or did I just like the game of Barbies? Because I was good at it. It was what I knew. I'd had training and knew how to play, knew how to win. So I thought, yes, there is winning with Barbies. The rules might not be written down, the scores never lit up or announced, but points are tallied and prizes awarded all the same. Likewise, fouls are called, offenders disqualified. It seems unfair, since boundaries and goalposts alike are never more than guessed at, and they shift. But that's the point. What makes winning at Barbies so special and so hard is that the game itself is so much more and so much less than what seems to be at play. As a child, I got good at Barbies. So I thought, but it wasn't just me playing, it wasn't just my game. Getting good is not the same as winning. All the while, I was being played, even as I fancied myself playing at much, much more. The Barbies, after all, were tokens, 
and I played with them because they were in my hands, a fee I willingly paid to enter the adults' game. We've been talking a great deal about the themes of the book. I find uh, very interesting how your poetics are being expressed through this collection because there is a variety of forms being explored. Yeah. One of the things that I've done through the collection is um, each section contains a poem that combines lines from all the other poems within that section. Uh, So there's actually 13 of those within the book, one through sections 1 to 11, and then section 12 has two, um, including one that then goes back to all the combination poems and makes a new combination from those. And again, it's that idea of the rumination and the memories and things kind of replaying and reordering themselves in different ways. Let's hear one of those poems. Sure. This is number nine. The severity fluctuates... Brief brilliance, like blooms on buds unfolding purely to die, and so become alive again, too faded, too many pieces missing or cracked, S-O-S, growing and dying, that's what islands do, stained and crinkled, smudged inky scribblings, a body with hands and arms and legs and toes and breath, one foot and then the other and the other and the other and the other and the no, no, oh, no. Can't feel, can't breathe, can't sense. They don't put animals through that anymore. The light switches on. Songs, sounds, blue, blue. They say there are things that can take this today, but tomorrow the wind may wake again. You are also a teacher of creative writing. What is it that you want young poets to take away from a creative writing class? I think with the students I work with, the main thing I have to instil in them, instil is a terrible word, the main thing I want them to realise for themselves is that they can. Because I think students come in with so much anxiety about, oh, I can't write a poem or it has to be this. And, you know, it's amazing how many people, you know, in their early 20s still can't kind of escape this idea that a poem must rhyme, A, B, A, B, A, B. Would you like to read a final poem? The final poem I'd like to read is actually the first one in the book and it acts as a dedication. It's written for the feminist writer Taslima Nasreen who was twice exiled, first from Bangladesh and then from India, basically for writing about women's issues. And I wanted to put this poem first in the book to kind of recognise that, you know, Although I say I'm writing this poem about silenced issues, at the, at the end of the day I have the privilege of being a white woman in a country where I, I have the freedom to do this and there's so many writers around the world where for so many reasons that's not possible for them. The kite in this poem um, was a real kite that I saw when I was over in India but the moment I saw it I thought that kite reminds me of Taslima and her defiance and her passion to keep on speaking her truth. Graceful as a knife yet the opposite of violence. A small kite is trapped in the tree outside my window, arcing, diving through the morning air. A ragged wren, black gone grey, sporting its tangles and tears, not as marks of shame, rather trophies of how far it has flown and through what storms. This ordinary kite, this extraordinary kite. Was it once some child's toy? 
flown in parks on sunny weekends, string held taut, no thought of grey? Perhaps. But at some point, circumstances cut or forced this kite to cut its own string, to jettison the green of comforts and soar beyond beyond, becoming a sculptor, carving wild forms in the air. Such a small kite, such infinite sky, yet it danced a dance not a dared dream possible, romancing cyclones, turning tempests into art. Now it is caught again, snagged by branches, yet with what small string it has, it keeps on dancing, keeps on daring, even in breezeless moments it jiggles its head as if to say no, as if to laugh. It will not stay trapped long, will not wither like the leaves. Any moment this kite will corkscrew up, 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 will dance more wildly than ever before. This ordinary kite, this extraordinary kite, the opposite of violence, shining like a knife. Thank you, Amelia. Thank you. I'm Tina Janukas, and you've been listening to Spoken Word on 3CR. Today, I've been talking with Amelia Walker. Amelia has just published her latest collection of poetry, A Log of Beasts, which is available online from Gazebo Books and uh, also from Readings in Melbourne and Paperbark Bookshop. Spoken Word broadcasts every Thursday at 9am on 855am or you can download the podcast. If you found any of the content today distressing, please reach out for support to Lifeline on 131114. Thank you for listening.